0: if you actually zoom out enough, like everything is time management from one perspective. The idea that time management should just be this kind of nerdy little field for a certain kind of person who's interested in it seems kind of wrong because we have this finite amount of time on the planet and building the most meaningful and fulfilling and worthwhile life we can is by definition a question of time management. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers.
1: Life is short. So what does this mean for your writing and your creative career? Hi there, my name is Brian Collins. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast. Perhaps one of the most impactful books that I've read about productivity and time management is the bestseller 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. The book proposes the idea that the average human lifespan is just 4,000 weeks long, which is basically a blip in the grand scheme of things. He also writes about how we're just 35 lifetimes separated from the ancient Egyptians. And he uses these types of numbers to put in framework what it means to try and get more things done and why this is a fool's errand. I'm a former Productivity nerd. I still like testing the latest productivity software and I like to dip in and out of the occasional book about productivity. I even wrote a column for Forbes several years ago all about this exact topic. These days, I don't think so much about productivity and getting more done as I do thinking about what are the right things or creative projects to work on. And in this particular book, Oliver proposes lots of different questions and ways that all types of people, including creatives and writers, can figure out what they want to work on and what they should just let slip or forget about. It's a really thought-provoking book if you've ever wondered about how you're spending your time or if you've ever obsessed about productivity and efficiency and getting things done. And it's also just a fantastically written non-fiction book that is resonated with people from all types of industries, including creatives and writers. So I was delighted when I got a chance to catch up with Oliver. One of my key takeaways from this week's interview with Oliver is how he doesn't attach himself too rigidly to a specific book writing or research system. I did press him on it a little bit and he reveals he uses the Zettel-Kasten method, but only a loose form of it. And he talks about his approach to research and writing books like this one. Oliver also talks about how he uses his personal newsletter to interact with his audience, and he explains what it's like to run a popular personal newsletter versus working as a columnist for a busy newspaper like The Guardian. Years ago, it was my dream to work as a columnist for a national prominent newspaper like The Guardian, and at first I was disappointed when this didn't really work out. And even later, when I got an opportunity to work as a columnist for Forbes, I found that it didn't quite measure up to my idea of what it would mean or what this type of writing career would look like. These days, I much prefer being in charge of my own writing through self-publishing and also through running a newsletter. So I was interested to hear Oliver's take on the merits of running a personal newsletter versus working as a columnist. Oliver also talks about how he's working on an idea for his next book. I hope you enjoyed this week's interview with him. If you do, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes store or just simply hit the star button because your reviews and ratings do really help more people find the Become a Writer Today podcast, which in turn helps me grow the show and invest in it. Also consider sharing the show with another friend or somebody who would enjoy this week's interview with Oliver. You could share it on Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And of course, if you have questions or suggestions, I'm on Twitter at Brian, B R Y A N J Collins. Welcome to the show, Oliver. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm a former productivity geek. I still love testing software and trying out new systems. So I guess I've been doing it all wrong. (laughs) I actually used to write about productivity as well years ago, which I believe you used to as
0: well. Yeah, I think maybe you agree with this. I don't know. Maybe you disagree. Something happens that's very useful if you get to write about productivity and explore all these systems, which is like you get disillusioned in a very useful way because you kind of you lose faith in the idea that next time you're going to discover the method that's going to change your life forever. And that's actually a very useful kind of realization to go through, I think, that there isn't one silver bullet productivity technique out there. I also discovered one of the ideas
1: inside of the book, which is the better you get at getting things off your to-do list, the more things that will arrive.
0: Right. I call this the efficiency trap, but it's it's kind of an old point in lots of different domains of life that if you just make a system more efficient, and that could be your personal system for getting things done, all else being equal, what's going to happen is that more and more inputs are going to flood into the system. And they're also going to be lower quality inputs for reasons we can talk about if you like. So the upshot of that is if all you do is kind of optimize and get more and more efficient at processing tasks, you'll be busier and busier with less important stuff than if you hadn't. Email's a classic example, right? If you get really good at answering email very fast, you just get a lot more email.
1: Yeah, inbox zero doesn't really work. <laughs> uh,
0: so you've written three books, correct me if I'm wrong, and you were... All- the first one was a collection of columns, so I, I did write it. But it sort of was already there when it came time to put it out as a book. So, have you worked as a journalist and columnist throughout your career? I mean, pretty much. I kind of always wanted to be a journalist. And so, as soon as I was out of college, I was trying to get work in, in journalism. Not all of it was, was writing. Some of it was sub-editing and research and doing some other things. But then I wrote this column for The Guardian for like, what, 12, 14 years, I think, about uh, self-help, happiness, productivity, philosophy, all that stuff. So that was a real discipline, producing that on a weekly schedule
1: a good habit for writers. And do you still write columns after the success of your book?
0: I stopped doing that column just a little bit before this book came out, but I do still do freelance journalism and I write a sort of twice monthly email newsletter, which in some ways is a column, I suppose.
1: Yes, certainly is. I enjoyed one of your articles, which I'm going to ask you about in a moment. So productivity, there's a lot of books about productivity. How did you decide to take on a topic that's been covered ad nauseum and, and time management?
0: Well, I mean, sort of two answers to that. One is I'm always just writing about the things that grab me. And I think that topics grab us often because we struggle with them, not because we're really good at them. So in a way, I had spent, you know, many years chasing this mirage of the perfect system that was going to make me feel completely in control of my life and able to cope with all the demands being made of me and feel sort of completely calm about it. So I was deeply invested in this topic to begin with. But then the other thing I would say, and I try to make this argument in the book, is if you actually zoom out enough, like everything is time management from one perspective. The idea that time management should just be this kind of nerdy little field for a certain kind of person who's interested in it seems kind of wrong because we have this finite amount of time on the planet and building the most meaningful and fulfilling and worthwhile life we can is by definition a question of time management. So I slightly wanted to kind of explode the definition of that term as well.
1: When I read your article on your website on writing, excuse me if I mangled the metaphor, but you were saying that the topics inside 4,000 weeks, you kind of wrote them from the bottom up. You were looking for the right washing line to hang the ideas on, so to speak. So I guess it sounds like you tested your ideas for the book in advance or written about them previously.
0: I mean, that's true. It didn't, I wasn't really conscious of doing that, but of course, writing a column every week will give you a sense of what, grabs people and what doesn't, and then sending out an email newsletter. I mean, goodness me, that's extraordinary in terms of the level of feedback and engagement you will get and the degree to which you can sort of tell from that which ideas are landing with people, but also implications of ideas that you hadn't seen yet. I think the main point about sort of building from the bottom up is just that for me, coming up with ideas for books and even just ideas for individual columns has always been a matter not of going hunting for some big idea that I hadn't thought of and then unpacking it, but rather just looking at what it is that seems to be really obsessing me at the moment, what topics keep coming up in conversations that I keep having with people, and trying to find what is the sort of umbrella that unifies those things. What's the the washing line or the, or the sort of, yeah, whatever metaphor you want to use. And for a book, that's especially true. It's a question of looking at all the stuff that I've written recently, that I've been reading, that has been compelling my attention, and just trying to figure out, like, what are these all about? What gives them some coherence? So I sort of come upwards, I guess to my book ideas rather than from the top down.
1: When you're reading a book
0: about a particular topic or you
1: come across some interesting research, do you have a particular process for writing down
0: your notes and thoughts on it? Do you have a system? I sort of do. It's in constant evolution. Now, on the one hand, I think that's an important point about systems and productivity, that you should just resign yourself to the fact that it's always going to be a work in progress and not be worried about it not being finished. But on the other hand, it means that answering a question like that is very much also just, it might be different a week from now. I just highlight books as I read them when they're paper books, even though that's famously a bad way of retaining them. And then I go through those highlights on a sort of sporadic basis. And I work in Obsidian, at the moment anyway, the note-taking app, to sort of make a note of my reactions to those chunks. I was very, and then I do that also with articles. You know, I'm I'm always trying to make a note... That puts that information to use in some way, even if it's just like, oh, it would be really interesting to write an article on X, as opposed to just like summarizing like I did at university, you know, that sort of thing where you're trying to just like capture the everything that's in a source. I've sort of long ago given up trying to do that. I was really taken by the whole resurgence of the idea of a Zettelkasten, which I know, you know what that is.
1: I'm a huge fan of the Zettelkasten method. It's great for organizing
0: ideas. So I think what I would say, I mean, push back on this by all means, but I'm like a huge fan of it in principle. And then I have never found a way to implement that that isn't sort of too heavy on the overheads in terms of the time it takes to really follow the rules. So I guess what I have ended up with is a very laid back, distant cousin of the Zettelkasten method, which is really just a question of putting a whole bunch of notes into a big heap and sometimes connecting them a bit, probably not turning fleeting notes into permanent notes and all those stages of it, but just trying to come at other people's writing with the question of like, okay, what does this connect to in my mind? What could this be useful for? Rather than just trying to summarize people's books and articles, I suppose. And I find that that disorder that is maintained. That's similar to what I do. Right. That, that works quite well. I find that that looseness and disorder in the system is actually very helpful. I think it's very good for creativity to not fully categorize everything and to not sort of try to pin it all down in a sort of too rigorous a way. It makes it much more appealing to me to come back to a collection of notes if they're in a bit of a mess and sort of work through them and find something that would be good to use as a starting point for writing. Actually, part of my personality wants to categorize it all to within an inch of its life, but it's not a good part of my personality.
1: Did it take long for you to write 4,000 weeks? Like, I, I get the sense it was written during the lockdown, so I'm wondering how long the actual process took.
0: Yeah, the last third was written in the lockdown. It was hugely uneven. I sold the proposal for that book, I think six years before it was published, and then almost immediately became apparent. And so like two years of my life were completely, you know, extremely little work was done, except my sort of basic day job for a period. Then getting back into it, it took a lot of sort of upfront thinking. You know, I spent a lot of days sort of, Wandering around Prospect Park in Brooklyn, feeling like I probably wasn't doing anything, but on some level I was. And then when it came to the r- actual writing of it, it was kind of surprisingly fast. It often goes that way with me. I wrote a book proposal, and on some level I knew what the book was about, but then I had to really work out what it was about. And it was, I think it was more painful than it needed to be. I didn't have that sort of notes approach to note taking in place back then that I've just discussed here. And so I think I would have come to some of the conclusions that I needed to come to bit faster than i ended up doing
1: one section in the book that resonated with me spoke about how you should accept that you won't do a great job at everything and it's okay to accept if something is undone or unfinished or not to the quality that you want it to be so like how can a creative or how can a writer take that advice on board if for example they're you know they're not happy with the quality of their blog posts or articles or their book how should I decide what to let go versus what to keep pushing?
0: Well, I think it starts with understanding that this is just how things are, right? It's not a question of me saying why don't you fail to excel in every single area of life. It's like you are not going to do that because the standards that we're capable of internalizing, the ambitions that we're capable of having, the pressures that we're going to capable of feeling from the wider world, they're all kind of infinite and yet the time that we have is all very strictly finite. So Sacrifices are being made, and it's just a question of making the wisest ones that you can. In the context of creating things, I think I'm a huge believer in the idea that creative work is never finished only abandoned and that you sort of, if you're chasing the moment when it feels like the book or the article or the post is kind of perfectly completed, that's never going to happen because, and it's for a sort of quite a deep philosophical reason in a sense, which is that the standard in your mind of perfection there is not something that belongs to the material world. It's not something that you're ever going to reach. And if you do reach it, what's going to happen is that your internal standard is just going to leap ahead to a new level of perfection that you have yet to reach. And one of the, really interesting things for me as a writer about these kinds of topics has been that it's not even desirable anyway, right? That actually a certain amount of roughness around the edges, a certain sense that you're just sort of figuring this out for yourself, that you haven't sort of come up with the absolutely perfect shiny version of it, actually helps you connect to other people. They sort of, they find that relatable and you can sort of connect to other people's thinking and other people where they're at more effectively if you're just sort of leaving a few loose ends. So I think it's partly to do with like press publish, even if you don't feel ready because you will probably never feel ready. It might also be things like whole domains of your life or your business that you're just going to do the minimum about for now because you're going to focus all your efforts on one or two others when you have kids and you're trying to do any job certainly i found this as a writer it's really useful to sort of accept in advance that your house is not going to be incredibly tidy for example because then you don't fail to keep it tidy it's like you didn't try in the first place and you can pour your energy into the things that matter like being with your kid and writing stuff
1: i accepted i'm never going to be great at diy (laughs) there's always always going to be something broken in the house (laughs) yeah it's a good example So did you start your
0: newsletter before or after the book? I started it before the book was published. I started it properly, writing it properly only after the book was basically complete. And
1: do you find readers are coming from knowing your work as a columnist or because they've read the
0: book? First of all, it was a lot of people sort of transferring over from The Guardian, I think, uh, from The Guardian column. Now I think it's primarily my most recent book, which has done much better than my previous two, just in terms of sales and things. But there's also plenty of people coming from web searches, podcasts, people forwarding the email. I did a survey of my newsletter recipients just the other day, and I have actually have yet to really plumb the, the data there. But one thing that was clear is it's certainly not only people who've read my book. There's plenty of people who've never read any of my book.
1: It's always good to survey uh, newsletter subscribers and put like a face behind yeah. the number. When you're writing a column versus writing a personal newsletter, or a news editor that you have no editor Mm. that's saying, Oliver, you need to send this. Are there any differences that you noticed? Or did you have free reign with your column as well?
0: I had pretty free reign with my column in the sense that I do sort of pride myself on writing clean copy. So I wasn't sending things in that needed kind of rebuilding from the ground up in order to make sense. I would get queries, like not quite sure what you're getting at here. Can you rephrase it? But I have to say that by the, certainly by the sort of latter half of the long time I was writing that column, I was fairly sort of left to get on with it in a sense. Book editing is a whole different situation. And I have both the books that I've written from the ground up, as it were, rather than as a collection of columns, have been completely dependent on really good editing and a back and forth. Because I think, and a lot of that is not to do with the level of sentence construction. Again, I think I'm pretty good at that, but it's the structure. It's like figuring out how something as big as a book works. It's incredibly useful to have one or two other people involved in that process. The other thing that I noticed doing the newsletter is that it's all on me for it to come out, on a regular basis and it hasn't actually been I'm not one of those people who can say I've never missed a scheduled publication day because I have sort of back in the saddle with that now but it has sometimes dropped off and I have noticed how much difference it makes to have that external pressure of like somebody going to get cross with you if you don't send it in of course subscribers to a free newsletter are not going to get cross they some of them may miss it most of them I think probably wouldn't realize That it was due to come that day and that's a little bit dangerous because then it makes you realize that actually it's not compulsory to be consistent i think it probably is extremely beneficial in all sorts of different ways to be consistent but you're not going to get in trouble if you're not
1: yeah i've I've noticed with i was a journalist and you know an editor has to fill a space in the paper so they need the column whereas If you have a personal newsletter, you're trying to get someone's attention and they don't have a lot of time. They're busy, so they're they're less likely to notice if you miss the the publication date. But obviously, you have more freedom with what you can write and what you can say. So are you working on an idea for a a future book or are you more focused on your writing for the newsletter and interviews and book promotion at the moment?
0: I am working on an idea for a future book. It's funny timing. I literally this morning sent a very long stream of consciousness email to my agent, which is really the first step in that process. So I think it's just too early to talk about it all. It makes me sound coy to not want to say what's in that email, but this is just like, this is how soon, how recently this part of the process came. And that really is a kind of, I'm very lucky. To work with such a brilliant agent who's willing to do this kind of back and forth over ideas. I don't think that's a given in book publishing, but I think it can be replicated to some extent if with people who are not happening, who don't happen to be an agent, right? It's that having that back and forth where you can say, okay, this isn't elegantly phrased, but this is what all my ideas are focusing in on at the moment. And I think there's something here. What do you think? And obviously, if people have expertise, then their feedback counts for something in particular, but I think that just that back and forth is really important. I think it would be very scary in a sort of, if I was working in, say, a self-publishing context and not reaching out to other people at this early stage, it would be extremely terrifying to think that you might be going deep, deep, deep off in a kind of wildly bizarre direction. So I I definitely advise bringing other people Whoever they may be in your situation, into the process early.
1: Did you enjoy writing four thousand weeks, or did you find it a difficult process?
0: I mean, it was hard. I would not claim that it was all just like skipping through a meadow. You know, it wasn't all delightful. I do really enjoy. I think the sort of process of writing once you've figured out what you want to say, especially when you're revising, I kind of like revising things. I don't particularly enjoy the bit that feels like hard thinking. It feels like you're trying to especially with this book i was trying to discover almost a kind of a a philosophy of time and life that was it felt like it was there and i had to try to figure out what it was rather than that i was just sort of creating it and there were days when that felt like banging my head against a brick wall but the nuts and bolts writing of it once i've figured out what needs to be said in a given chapter is is pretty enjoyable and satisfying
1: yeah so, I came across an author who is the anti example to what you talk about and write in the book. You've definitely heard of her, Danielle Steele. Mm-hmm. She gave an interview with Vogue magazine or Harper several years ago. And she said that she wants to die face down in mm-hmm. her typewriter, <laughs> she wants to go on forever writing. And uh, the headline of the article was something like, how has Danielle Steele managed to write? I know that article well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What do you make when you hear of somebody who is so focused on one area of their life like that?
0: Well, I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with being so focused on one area of your life intrinsically. it, It might be the case that that's bad for any given person. When I came across this interview you're talking about and wrote a bit about it, I mean, I think that what's so striking From the outside, looking at Danielle Steele's work habits, is that if it was anything other than writing, I think, and you just sort of got a neutral description of how somebody works in that way, you would think that there was something amiss. You'd think that there was some sort of problem here, that they were kind of mainly trying to sort of bury themselves in work to avoid something. And to her credit, firstly, Danielle Steele has put this workaholism to an amazing use and bringing pleasure to millions. And secondly, In that interview, as I recall, she was quite forthright about the idea that she sort of uses writing to escape from difficulties in her personal life. So I don't think I'm telling her anything she wouldn't know. But I think the sort of deeper issue is, as a culture, we are a bit sort of pathologically productive. We do have this feeling that we're not really justifying our existence on the planet unless we are processing tasks getting things done creating word count whatever it might be and firstly it's just kind of no way to live and probably points to some other serious questions you might need to be asking yourself about your life but also i don't think it's necessarily that good for the work i think those open spaces are where the ideas bubble up you know we hear so it's a obviously such a cliche of sort of writing about writing that going on long walks is a important part of so many people's creative process. And I know that there's the whole science of why walking should go along with creativity. But for me, and I do do that, for me, it's more just like, especially living out here in the country with no phone reception, as we do now. It's just, when I go on a walk, I've put myself in a position where I can't, like, Things off a task list, and I can't check up on incoming messages or anything like that. And it's just like an enforced mental gap. And I'm sure it's great that it's also physical movement and all the rest of it, but it is just that sense of like, I'm a mile from home now. So, like, there's just space. And that is when things bubble up and come into that space just because I've put myself outside of that web of productivity for a short period. That reminds me of a
1: a book that you've undoubtedly read. I interviewed him a few a year ago, David Allen, author of Getting yeah. Things Done. But he, he says that your mind is for ideas, not for holding them. Is that something you probably agree with? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, I, I've also spoken with David and he said very nice things about my first book, The Antidote. I was a huge GTD disciple. It doesn't represent my productivity approach now, I don't think, but that part of it, the capture part, the part that says keep, some kind of big list or record of everything that is on your plate or that pops up into your mind, do not rely on your brain as a storage mechanism for any of this. That is just like, you could have said that and done nothing more his entire life. And that would have been like the one of the greatest contributions to creativity and humanity, I think. So yeah, that bit, the part that first of all, when it comes to tasks, but secondly, when it comes to ideas, just like, Making sure that there is always a notebook or an index card or an app within reach, so that you're not relying on your brain to hold them, I find that incredibly useful. And of course, you know, fifty percent of them, when I come back to them, I can't understand why they were su- seemed like such a good idea. But that's just the filtering process. That's great. That's a feature, not a bug. I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's getting into the habit of note taking, and often that's yeah. enough. The, the simple act of writing yeah. a note. And finally, when you think of the success of your book, did you ever consider that a book like this could work as a serialised newsletter? So Salman Rushdie, for example, is serialising one of his novels on Substack.
0: That's a fascinating thought. It seems to me to make much more sense as a novel for novels than for nonfiction. fiction Obviously, there's a long history of periodically published novels published in parts over time. I suppose in some sense that kind of is what I'm doing anyway in the newsletter. It's all adding up to things that I hope will be represented in a new book. But I think, I don't know, I think the way I work with nonfiction, it would be pretty difficult to get an overview from the, to work in that sequential way because I'm not telling one story. I'm trying to sort of map out a territory and I think it helps to have the map before you write the book. But what I'm doing in the newsletter is like, the cartography, uh, that is the mapping. So I guess it in some sense it amounts to the same thing. I mean, I know Salman Rushdie is recuperating from this terrible attack right now, but I would be fascinated to know in that project whether he started it with a complete outline or whether it's an act of seeing where the story goes from instalment to instalment.
1: Yeah, perhaps he had the book written, I'm, I'm yeah. not sure. So Oliver, where can people go apart from their, go- their bookstore if they want to read your work or read your newsletter?
0: My website is oliverberkman.com. You can sign up to the newsletter there. You can find out more about the books there, and the books are available all the usual places. Yeah. Thanks, Oliver. Thank you.
1: I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes Store discounts on writing software and on my writing courses.